So the scripture reading today is found in Acts chapter 27, um, verses 9 through 26. It's on page 1703 in the Bible, um, in the pew rack in front of you if you want to follow along. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen, just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Thanks, Courtney. Before I start the sermon, um, I need to make a, a brief, important announcement. A few weeks ago, we had a congregational meeting, and... During that congregational meeting, um, I was supposed to talk about something that I forgot to talk about, which was relevant to what we did. So in two Sundays, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, after the second service, we're going to have a town hallish type congregational meeting. There won't be any motions from the elders. Um, we will take attendance so that if anybody nominates or um, motions some, moves something from the congregation, we can vote on it. But um, here's the, the two things that we need to talk about. We just want to—the reason the elders and I want to make sure we do this is just we don't want anybody to think that we're baiting and switching or doing anything underhanded or anything like that. Here's the thing. When I talked about Mike— Beresford being assessed to become a pastor of outreach and worship in the elders long-term plan In if the church continues to grow it is within our long-term plan to make him the executive pastor And we don't know how long that will be and so our concern was is that if he became the pastor of outreach and service And then if the church grew such that in only six or eight months We moved him into that position that would seem like a terrible bait-and-switch that we had done for, that we had planned from the beginning And it would be true because we had sort of planned it from the beginning And so our concern was that that would just really break trust with you And so we want to make sure that you know that we want to give you a chance to talk to us about it And we want to give you a chance to motion and move and do something different if you choose to do that The second thing is the elders are in conversation with one of our mission partners, um, a, uh, an Indian national who is going to be raising support for about a year, a year and a half, and we're considering opening a resident scholar position here where he'll be serving in the church and also doing fundraising, and his stipend will be very minimal. It's not a paid position, really. Um, but we don't have any precedent for that, and we really don't know how the congregation would feel about it. That's, again, within the right of the elders to make that decision, but because we don't have any kind of precedent for it, we wanted to talk with the congregation briefly about it and make sure you guys were on board and agreed with that. So, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, after the second service, we'll have a congregational meeting, which will be town hall style, to discuss those things a little bit. And if the congregation wants to do something different, you'll have the opportunity to, to intervene and do that. Does that make sense? Okay, great. So we've been doing this series for five weeks now. This is the sixth week where we've been looking at um, 
what, what does it take or, or what makes for an unshakable or unsinkable faith in Jesus? And in the last eight chapters of the book of Acts, there's about seven things that we're going to go over. We'll do the sixth one today. And part of the premise of this is that life is actually kind of a lot like going to sea, and you have no idea what's going to happen out there. There are going to be rough seas, and the question is not whether or not you're going to get beat up in life, because you are. The question is, are you going to sink? And even if you don't, are you going to have enough strength left over to help people who are? Because a lot of people are sinking. And it's really not just enough to make it yourself. Um, Jesus wants us to be able to help bear the weight of others, right? And so over the last five weeks, we've we've done those, and those sermons are on the website. But this week, what I want to say is that I believe it's implicitly argued in these seven chapters of Acts, or eight chapters of Acts, that you and I are supposed to waste nothing in our lives, especially in our spiritual lives, particularly as it relates to hardship. One of the verses that I think is sort of paradigmatic for these eight chapters is this one in 2715 where it says, The ship was caught by a storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. And that may not sound like a very key verse, and and theologically it's not. But in terms of what's actually happening in these last eight chapters of Acts, it is pretty important because of this. You can— you can lay out how people believe and trust in Jesus on the basis of how they deal with a headwind. When they're getting blown on so strongly by life, some people cannot accept the hardship or the detour of having to give away and let things they cannot control control the direction that they have to go in. But if you don't, it'll destroy you. But if you, if, you, if you think about it a different way, and if you believe in Jesus in a certain way in relationship to it, it makes an enormous difference. When I was in Florida, I did all power boating. I didn't do any sailing because I basically liked to catch and kill fish. And so <clears throat> there were a couple times where, you know, to come back in, um, from the Gulf of Mexico, you, you go due north, right? And every once in a while there would be a south wind, and there were a couple times where the south wind was like 25 knots, and so it was producing these seven-foot rolling breakers. And the boat I would go out when was about a 24-foot boat. And you want to talk about a harrowing experience. If you go straight back in, you come up over—you're coming up over a breaking wave, your boat will come up and smash down, and about every seventh, sixth, and seventh wave, they're going to be a little bigger. And those are going to crash over the top of your boat and start to fill your boat with water, which means you have to run your bilge pump, which works fine, so long as your bilge pump doesn't burn out. And your 12-volt battery is held up. And I—a couple of times I did that, and it was—we were only about seven miles offshore. It just about beat us to death. Just water everywhere, salt water in our eyes. My back ached for like a week and a half, and I was in my 20s. And my knees and my quads, and just, I mean, we just, we got to shore, and we were just exhausted. It was only seven miles, right? And sailboats are totally different. Sailboats are, are made to function with wind. When if you're in a powerboat, weather is just a liability. You got wind, it's always bad. You just didn't let it be flat, calm, so you could go 90 miles an hour. And that's how most of us live our lives. Weather, hardships, and detours, that's all just liabilities. We have some place we want to go, we know our compass bearing, we've set our GPS, and we just soon put both engines down as hard as we can and just fly. And sailboats aren't like that. Sailboats don't even work if there isn't weather. They're enormously heavier. They're designed to go through waves. And here's what, here's what sailors know. Seven-foot seas and 25-mile-hour winds are a problem. But if you turn the boat 30 degrees, that's all you have to do. All you have to turn is 30 degrees off the course you want to go. The wind will catch and fill your sails, and you will move. And here's the beautiful thing about 30 degrees. Instead of going like this, You go like this. Which will still make you puke, you know? <laughs> if, you're, if, you know if you don't have a strong stomach. But it's, it's a totally different thing. And 
when it comes to what it looks like to believe Jesus in hardships and in difficulty and detours, you got to become a sailboat and you got to give up the powerboat. The powerboat is running on your own power. You only have so much gas on board. You're beating yourself to death. You're going to run out, and it's, it's, it's not what this boat is for, right? And a sailboat accepts certain things that are dictated to it. It doesn't just look at the compass. It also looks at the weather. And any Christian, there's certain things we want to accomplish in our lives. And so we have, a, we have a compass bearing. And even if you're not a Christian, you probably have things you want to accomplish in life. So you have your little compass bearing. And if you don't accept that the weather also dictates where you're going, you're dead. You're not going to make it. You have to accept where you think you should be going and the adjustments that come from things you cannot control. And you have to let them work together and set a course on that basis. And if you will recognize the importance that the hardships not only change your course, but they can also propel you. They're not just an obstacle. It'll fundamentally transform the way you deal with life, and you will, you will face them in such a way as you will waste nothing, especially hardships. Now, when, if you actually go through and read chapters 21 and 27 or 28 in Acts, and I, I hope you'll do that this week, and I hope you'll do it with this sermon in mind, there are just so many different hardships that Paul goes through. If you look at this um, section, the last two chapters in Acts, I think Lloyd's going to talk more about these next week. It talks about, you know, he doesn't want to go on this bow, and they, they hardly make a port their first time. Then he's like, we should not keep going, and people are like, ah, let's sail anyway. And then they get caught in this, like, hurricane— level storm. The storm lasts something like, it's, it's at least two weeks long, right? They, they throw out anchors. So you want to you you talk about getting beaten to death, right? You add getting blown around in a hurricane-type wind to, in addition to that, dropping anchors so that you can't move freely with the water anymore. It is not a good situation, but it's preferable to running aground on shallows in which you'll all drown such that these people couldn't eat for days. They were so sick and so tired and so beat. And then they tried to tie the boat together. Did you hear that part? That's going to work, right? Then they, they threw stuff overboard. They threw over all their possessions. They finally gave up their lives for lost. And that's what happens oftentimes when we try to just do whatever we want and not see where we're being blown. But even when all that ends, and honestly, this is kind of a funny part. You get to the end of that, and they finally get to this place. They drop all four anchors, and the boat gets beat to death by the surf, and it actually breaks apart with the people on it, and people grab stuff, and some people swim for it, and everybody makes it to shore. It's kind of like, finally, the end of all of this suffering, right? And Paul is like trying to be helpful, because everybody's wet and freezing, because it's like October, and so he goes and he gets a, a bunch of brush to start a fire, and there's a viper in it, and when he puts it on the fire, and the snake feels the heat, it comes out and bites him on the hand, right? And you're kind of like, why did Luke include that bit? And it's got to be that after Paul didn't die, I just imagine he had to, like, laugh, right? I mean, after, after all this, he's been in prison for a couple of years. He's gone through this. The boat's broken up. There's all—I mean, all this stuff happens, and he finally gets the—and tries to be helpful and put some wood on the fire, and he gets bitten by a viper that is supposed to kill you, Right? And that, I mean, that's not even the half of it. That's just the ship part. There's this whole other part about his incarceration and his legal problems where he gets beaten half to death in Jerusalem and he gets arrested because he's the guy that's getting beaten half to death. That's really fair, right? And then he almost gets flogged and then he gets held in prison. He gets held in prison for two years because he won't pay a bribe. And then, in order to save his life, because if he would have been tried in Jerusalem, there were like all these plots to kill him, he appeals to Caesar, which means he has to stay incarcerated until he can be shipped to Rome and actually get on the docket and actually get an audience with Caesar and then try his case. Sounds fun, right? And yet, in all of that, Paul preaches to the most influential people he'd ever preached to. He preaches more sermons per page than the rest of the book of Acts. He brings the gospel to an island that who knows when the gospel would have made it to Malta. He saves the lives of 217 or however many people were on that boat because that boat was going to sea already. They didn't go to sea because Paul was on it. The centurion put them on that boat that was already shipping cargo. 
And Paul just about explicitly says that the only reason these people are going to survive is because Paul needs to end up before Caesar, and God has graciously allowed everybody to survive so that that would happen. And there's no way Paul could have foreseen any of this. But it was only because he had decided beforehand he would waste nothing, especially his hardships, that all of these things came about. Now, I am not saying this kind of, like, fake sentimentalist, hey, listen, you need to embrace your problems. Like, all these hardships, you just need to hug them like a big teddy bear. And as soon as you change your perspective a little bit, they won't even seem bad. No, they're going to seem bad. They're going to be awful. Like, you date some guy for three years thinking he wants to marry you, and then he just inexplicitly dumps you, and you've lost three years of your 20s or 40s or whatever. Like, that's terrible. There's no good version of that, right? You, you just—you lose your job. You can't get into the school you want to get into. Your kids are going buck nuts crazy. Your health is crashing. You can't make ends meet financially. There's a lot—listen, they're not—these te- are not teddy bears to be hugged. These are terrible— Difficult, painful, unfair, unjust, oftentimes when people sin against you, things. And Paul did not embrace any of these hardships as though they were not hardships. He just never wastes any of them. And you see, I think one of the things that we need to recognize is is that whenever anything has happened to you, or anything that happens to you in the future— You can't change any of those things. You cannot change anything that's happened to you, and in the future, when something does happen to you after that, you can't change it. It's a time-space problem. It's not going to work for a while. The question is then whether or not you're going to waste everything that has happened to you or is happening to you. That's the question. Because not only can't you change anything, but without faith— In God's providence, in the beauty of Christ, and in the working of God through all things, in his providence and through the work of the Holy Spirit, you will waste everything in addition to not being able to change anything. And when you recognize what's at stake and the potential that exists in all of our hardships, in fact, in everything that happens— one of the key things that needs to happen is you still need to cherish Jesus and you still need to believe in God's good providence that you need to decide that at the very bottom of the integrity of what it looks like to have an unsinkable faith, you need to waste nothing, especially hardships. Now, I want to break this down into two parts. One is that we need to first learn to see hardships as blessed opportunity. That is not the same thing as saying we need to see our hardships as blessings. Our hardships are not blessings. Our hardships, every single one of them, are many things. But one of the things every hardship is, in addition to everything else, is a blessed opportunity. That is an opportunity to do something that is blessed. Now, one of the reasons why it's extraordinarily difficult to do that, and by the way, I know Lama sold the two L's, I couldn't fix that yet, and that is apparently an alpaca. I was, I was corrected between hours. By our, by our resident alpaca farmer, of course. Um, is two things. One is that blessings do not follow cause and effect lines so that we, so we can't manage them. And secondly, that hardships don't look like opportunities, okay? And so therefore, it's very difficult to look at hardships as blessed opportunities. We are used to looking at things as cause and effect. So if you punch me in the face, my face is going to hurt, right? We understand that kind of stuff. And so we like to manage things. If I do this and this and this and this and this, I'll get this outcome. Blessing doesn't function that way. Blessing is we are obedient and faithful, and we do this and this and this and this and this, and God has set up the world to work like this, and then he personally acts this and this and this, and these things come together to produce this, and that thing is a blessing. And without God creating the world the way he said he did, and without him himself acting to make the thing produce a blessing, it doesn't. And so only when combined with faith and combined with obedience and humility do these things produce actual blessings. And therefore, it's terrifying because we don't actually trust God enough to do that. And so we look at the thing we're being told to do, and it does not look like it's going to work. Because our hearts do not figure in divine activity because we don't believe God can be trusted with our futures. And so we go, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this thing where all of the pieces actually are in my court and I can manage all of them. Which, of course, is crazy. But it seems that way. 
And so because blessing does not have a direct cause and effect relationship, it's very hard for us to believe in it. It does require faith in the goodness of God and in the responsiveness of God. And if you don't believe those two things, you will not move towards blessing. You will use management to move towards successes. Remind you of a particular culture that you might live in. And then the second thing is, hardships don't look like opportunities. They look like losses. When hardships come, they are losses, they are awful, and they don't look like opportunities. So looking for the opportunity that is in the hardship is really difficult because everything else screams a lot louder than the opportunity, especially if we don't have very strong faith, if we don't really trust Jesus deeply. And so instead of seeing blessed opportunity in our hardships, we tend to experience them as confusing and overwhelming. And here's the problem, that we tend to respond to confusing and overwhelming things with being confused and overwhelmed. Right? And by confusion, I mean, I don't know how to think through this in a way that is faithful. I, like, it feels like injustice. It doesn't feel good, but yet God is supposed to be good, and this is all confusing. And by overwhelmed, what I mean is this, that we don't have enough discipline in our convictions that when our emotions flare up, we can put them in check. Because most of our problem with our hardships isn't that we have, like, syllogistically reasoned our way through the metaphysics of the logic of how this doesn't work. What happens is our hearts go, ah! This is bad! And you're like, you, and you, you're, your thinking mind doesn't go, that's not an argument. <laughs> right? Your thinking mind is like one flesh with your um, passions and your emotions. And so all your reason goes, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to agree with you. Let me make up an argument that agrees with that. Right? And before you know it, you're confused and obsessing and overwhelmed and freaking out. And so you don't respond to the hardship as a blessed opportunity. And so you don't respond to it with trust. You don't respond to it with conviction. And you don't respond to it with curiosity. Now that may seem like I'm trying to make an artsy turn on you, but what I mean is this. If you're caught up in the frustration of the hardship, then you can't really inquisitively and curiously ask, I wonder what God is doing. What, heart, what thing in my character has made this worse than it needed to be? Did I actually create this? And God's actually showing me I need to change? Is there some end that is meant to be displayed in all this? Is there a way that I can show Christ's worth, Jesus' way, or the transforming power of the gospel in me to others through this? I mean, what is God doing? And oftentimes, you can read some of the providence in the things that are happening, but only if you respond with curiosity rather than anger. Now, it's, it's hard to accept that if you're struggling with a lot of hardships because it sounds like, because inside your, your insides are being like, ah, this is bad! And like, that's on video and I'm on audio. Like, I'm the wah, wah, wah in the background, right? And so the way scripture handles this, and it's one of the reasons why the Bible tells the story as well as gives the teaching. And Acts is great for this. It gives us the sermons. And it also tells us what happened. And sometimes it requires the story because if Paul had just said somewhere, hey, listen, you need to look at your hardships as blessed opportunities. We'd be like, oh, whatever. You know, like a 13-year-old. But we don't. What we do is we look at and we, we can read the story. So we can actually read what happened. And the thing about Paul's hardships is they just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse until they didn't all of a sudden. Because after you get to the viper on the hand gig, which is, I mean, I think that would be kind of a good Christian saying. So like when you feel like you are so overwhelmed with all of the stuff that's been happening in your life and just when you thought it was going to end, like something else happened. You know what I'm talking about? It happens like every week, right? I mean, you're just kind of like one more thing. You need to say to your Christian friend, I got a viper in my hand. Like, I think that would kind of, some kind of version of that. Can somebody wordsmith that? I think that would work, because you'd be like, listen, just when I thought I was at the end, and I was at, like, the end of my rope, and it was finally going to break, something totally different just came out of left field and just T-boned me. Right? I got a viper in my hand. But here's what happened with the viper in the hand. This viper's, like, hanging off of Paul's arm, and he's like, get off of me. Right? And people kind of look at him like, what? And then they're like, he's going to die. And then he's like, you know, eating his porridge and not dying. And they're like, what the, what the heck? He didn't even, what the, right? And then he doesn't die, and, and then they think he's a god. 
They're like, he's like Zeus or something. And he's like, I'm not Zeus. I just believe in Jesus. And they're like, well, Jesus rocks. And so this guy's like, well, if you don't die of viper bites, the guy who's like the leader of the island who'd come out to meet this shipwrecked group of people, like if 200 refugees show up on your shore, you got to go out and say hi, right? And so he's out there, and, and so he meets Paul, and he's like, listen, my father's at our house dying of chronic dysentery, which sounds fun, right? Right? And so Paul's like, well, I'll pray for him. So they take him, and Paul prays this guy, and he gets better. And then word gets out, and all these people who are sick on this island just come, and it says Paul he prays for him and heals all of them. Right? It's pretty wild. And that's—I mean, like, that's the little piece that happens out of all of this. A whole island comes to Jesus, right? In addition to that, he ends up speaking before an emperor. In addition to that, his incarceration— gave him the greatest opportunity to speak with the most influential people in the most places. Hey, he got a free trip to Rome. When was the last time you got a free trip to Rome and got to talk to a president of the largest empire in the world? Right? He got there through prison. Like these— But listen, here's what—in every single case, in every single case, in every single case, Paul was always wasting nothing. He was always wasting nothing. He was always embracing the blessed opportunity in every hardship. It didn't mean he liked the hardship. He didn't hug the hardship and go, oh, I love the hardship. He hated the hardship, I'm sure, but he didn't waste any hardship. You don't have to like your problems. You don't have to like your limitations. You don't have to like your aging. You don't have to like your your job. You don't, you, you don't have to like these things. I would say you don't have to like your spouse, but you know, there's a fine line, you know, there. But you don't have to like your situation with your spouse or your kids. But what you do have to do is not waste the divine opportunity that all hardship creates to grow in character, to display character, to display the glory of Jesus, to show the way of Jesus, how Jesus would handle a situation like that, to show the worth of Jesus, that no matter how much this thing weighs against you, Jesus is worth more than that, and only hardship can produce the demonstration of the worth of Jesus. Because nobody believes you when things are going well for you that Jesus is super valuable. Or the transformation of Jesus. It only works when people assume that you would behave otherwise. But in that situation, you strangely act as though Jesus is King and Lord, and you, and you love him. And when that people see that, they see the transformation of Jesus, and the transformation of Jesus is happening in you, probably. There's, there's three perspective fixes. One we've already done. But an atheist could believe this one, right? It's true. It belongs to Christians, like all truth does because it belongs to everyone. But an atheist could believe this too, be like, you know, you, you know you're right. It, life is what it is, and I might as well not waste opportunities, right? There's the diagnostic perspective, which is this. If you realize how hardships produce blessed opportunities, you'll realize that all you need to do is change 30 degrees to turn the hardship into a hardship that is also a great opportunity. You can't change it into a non-hardship. If the wind is blowing, the wind is blowing. But you can turn it into a hardship that is also producing something good and in faith that will produce something blessed. But the last thing, the third one, is the theological perspective. And that is this. In the Bible, there are all kinds of things that God knows that he does not tell us, which includes the vast majority about how he is providentially, as the ruler of all things, working for the ends which he desires. And he tells us something about those ends and something about how he does it, but, but strangely little, and he does not apologize for it. And sometimes theologians refer to that as God's hidden will or his secret will. And then there's all the stuff that he has told us. Don't commit adultery. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commit yourself to the public reading of Scripture, and so on. And those things he has told us we're to do. And we're supposed to respond to his revealed will with obedience and to his secret will with faith. Now, people often ask us, want, and here's the problem that we face as people who are sinful, is we want to know the secret will and not have to do the revealed will. That's what we want. And the problem is that job, 
the job of knowing the secret will of God, there is not actually an opening for that job. Okay, that is, that's actually God's job, and he has not resigned and has tenure, okay? And he's going to be doing that job. And so, let me give you an example of this. I would listen to Tim Keller answering a, a question a while back with, uh, like, somebody in their 20s asking if they should go in the ministry. Like, they're, they're working in the New York financial sector, and they're like, I love Jesus. I was thinking about going to ministry. Should I go in the ministry? And Keller's response is this. He said, listen, the answer is, you can't know, and neither can I. If you want to go into ministry, and you believe in it, and, they, and then you kind of, like, check the yellow, the, like, the, the wanted ads— if someone will actually, like, let you minister to them, then in God's revealed will, that door is open. He said, the, the problem with God's secret will is it's secret. I remember when I came to Madison, people, were, people would say to me, they're like, oh, you must feel, you must, like, know it's God's will for you to go to Madison. And I was like, um, they're like, because, you know, it's kind of a secular town and blah, 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 blah. I was like, yeah, okay. And, but I, and people sometimes at this church, they were like, I, I mean, I hope you really feel called here. And I mean, sure, I feel called, but I don't, I don't know God's secret will. I don't know if I'm going to be alive on Thursday. I don't know anything. I mean, if I end, I could be driving a bread truck, truck by next Wednesday. Well, to take a congregational meeting to fire me, son. 11 days, right? And so— I, I, all I know is that God has given me something to do in his revealed will, and I'm supposed to do it. And then what I have to ask about his secret will is, am I willing to trust on the basis of the character of the God who holds those things, things in secret because he's God? Do I trust him, not do I like how, that plan? Because I don't even know that plan. And you see, when it comes to our hardships— the meaning and purpose and possible blessed outcome of our, of our hardships resides within the secret will of God, and the problem with the secret will of God is that it's secret. You don't know it. You're not going to know it. Some portion of it might ultimately be revealed in the last day, like when Jesus comes back and sets things right. It may be—I don't think we probably have the brain power, even if it was all laid out for us. I— there's, there's no reason to believe that we have the computing power anyway, even if he tried to tell us everything. And so what this ultimately comes down to is not, um, what are we supposed to do? There isn't a, what are we supposed to do in terms of like, should you marry Alice? Right? In God's revealed will, there's only one question, should you marry Alice? Is she a Christian? And will you commit to love her till you die? or one of you dies, and without killing each other. <laughs> right? That's it! Now, you can marry Alice in the revealed will of God, and it can be an enormous tactical blunder. But the whole question of is, is it in God's secret will? The problem with the secret will of God is that it's secret, and he doesn't tell you. You have to decide. And it is not not seeking God— Sometimes when evangelical and Bible-believing Christians and charismatic Christians talk about seeking God, it's, very, it's a very good thing. A lot of times it is saying, in order to live my life, God has to reveal to me his secret will in order for me to know what I'm supposed to do. Friends, that is not how it works. God has given us his revealed will. You are bound to act within his revealed will. Everyone—sometimes God will reveal something of a secret will through the gift of prophecy, or they will, he will tell you—but that's actually not all that common. And usually it's just enough to encourage you to make it through today. It's, it's not a blueprint for the future. And then you don't get to know God's secret will. You just have to choose. So choose. But in so doing, choose within obedience to God's revealed will— and choose with faith and trust in the one who works out his own secret will. And if you don't trust the secret will, when things happen to you, you will respond with being overwhelmed or being confused rather than looking at it with faith, conviction, and curiosity. Does that make sense? Well, that's all the time I can spend on it right now. The second thing is, to a certain extent, 
a good bit of what I've said so far, an atheist could say, a Buddhist could say, a, um, a painter could say, right? What is the difference between the Christian version of, hey, change your attitude and difficulty, and things will be fine, and that's this. None of this makes sense, biblically speaking, especially in these eight chapters of Acts, unless for us, we believe the truth that Jesus is greater than life itself. Acts does not make sense as a person who embraces, as following Paul, embracing the blessed opportunity in all of his struggles. If, if we don't accept in interpreting that story that Jesus is greater than life itself, that Paul believed, believed Jesus was greater than life itself, <coughs> and that we interpret the story believing Jesus is greater than life itself. I mean, think about this. What was the actual blessing that Paul received? Think about this. So Paul is never freed from his incarceration. He nearly dies repeatedly throughout the whole time. He never makes really any money. He has almost no belongings this whole time. He, he's celibate. He doesn't have the, com the, the comfort of romantic relationships or any of those things, that, right? He's hated by virtually everybody, except for the people that love him. Just very few people had no response to Paul, right? And then he's ultimately beheaded. So as you contemplate the pouring out of his spinal fluid, what exactly was the profound blessing that Paul received in not wasting anything, including his hardships? And you see, none of that makes any sense unless you believe that Jesus is better than life. Because the only thing Paul accomplished in all of this, in all of these hardships, in all of these sufferings, and in ultimately his martyrdom, the only thing that he accomplished was he made Jesus known where Jesus was previously unknown. And he displayed the beauty of Jesus to people who had never seen the beauty of a Jesus-formed person fully. That's the only thing he has to show for any of this. Right? And I want, I want you to understand that this was his attitude because he explicitly wrote it in Philippians 1.18. He said, he's, he's in prison. He thinks he's probably going to be killed. Some people that hate him are preaching about Jesus because they're jealous about him. And he says this, he says, listen, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether by false motives or true, that Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So he's lost everything else. People who hate him are preaching about Jesus, and he can't because he's stuck in prison. But all it takes— all it takes for his heart to swell with joy is that somewhere somebody is preaching, somebody is sharing, somebody is drawing other people to the way and the worth and the transformational power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? That is only amazing if Jesus is greater than life. That only works. And here's what I want you to understand this, about this. In this, now in a lot of other ways, Paul is a great hero. In this, he is not a great hero. He is a standard New Testament Christian. Okay? He, 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 is, a, he is a floor mopping, beard wearing, plumber, dentist, dad, mom, kid, student, Panera liking, just normal, run of the mill person who is a real, actual Christian who has real faith in the crucified and risen Jesus, and that faith is so deep that he knows that Jesus is better than life, and therefore it affects everything he does. And as you go through the New Testament, you just see this over and over and over again. A couple of verses after the verse we just read in Philippians. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. That is, in this context, that his, his courage will not fail if they kill him. That's what he means in that sentence. But I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
So his only concern is whether or not his bravery and conviction would hold, so that whether he lives or whether they kill him, that whatever happens to him in his physical body as he's physically alive, that Jesus will be seen to be greater and bigger than everything that there possibly could be, greater than life himself, and that his body, his life, in dying or living would be spent for that end and that end only. That's all he's concerned about. In Luke, Jesus says the same thing in the negative about becoming a Christian. He says this to people who wanted to be his disciples. He said, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, that is, be his disciple, he must, so it's not optional and it's for everyone, deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Meaning, everything else in his life other than following Jesus must be subjected to the death of the cross. So the, the physical picture is, is that Jesus is walking away with his cross to be, to be crucified, to lose everything for the good of the will of his Father for the redemption of all people. And the question is, there's a cross right there with your life written on it. Everything you love, everything you care about, everything you hope for, everything that matters to you, other than belonging to Jesus. And he says, we're going to nail you to that, and you're going to die. Come follow me. Pick it up and put it on your shoulder because it's going to be, your losing of it is going to be the instrument of your own execution, and in it you will gain everything. Because he says, anybody who tries to save his life by some other means will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. He's saying the exact same thing as Paul. He's just saying it in the negative. In the Old Testament, you can see the psalmist writes it this way. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. That is, he has seen God for who he is accurately. And the only possible response in his mind is this. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. In your name, in your name, I will lift my hands. You see, same, exact same idea. Colossians 3, 2 to 4, it says this. Set your mind. So he's talking about just the way we should think all the time as Christians. He says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And so he's not saying, think about heaven and how fun heaven is going to be. He's saying, think about the kingdom that is in heaven and the king who is king there, which is Jesus. And he says, why? Because you died when you believed in Jesus. When you, when you believed in Jesus, your life here, to the extent to which it exists independent of that king, died. And your life— does not exist here as people see it, but your real life is hidden with now with Christ in God. When Christ—and here's just a little parenthetical statement. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You can even see it in a simple verse like this in Colossians about how we do our jobs and eat our food. He says, whatever you do— which makes up your whole life. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Why? Because of what you're going to win, because of your success? He says, no, as working for the Lord, not for men, including you working for yourself as a man or woman. But he says, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward— it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So what he's saying is, is it's not just a general religious thing. He's saying when you have to get that crappy, you know, medical assistant job at the hospital, and when you're mopping up the seventh round of puke from the same patient who keeps sneaking jello, <laughs> and it's either your job or there's no one else there to do it, and the other person is gurgling out obscenities, up, you know, hyped up on painkillers, this is— Jesus being displayed, the Jesus who is your life, and the Christ you are serving, defines this event so that whatever you do, even if it's this, you do it with all your heart. Because your inheritance is coming from your identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God and a prince or, or queen of eternity because you have been called as an ambassador in this hour to mop that floor or to serve that coffee or to finish that class or to parent that kid. All of it comes back to because Christ, who is your life, frames this, defines this. And therefore, if the thing is a hardship, 
because Christ is more valuable than anything, there is something of Christ to be experienced, displayed, spoken, and shown in that thing, even if you personally never overcome it. If you believe, if you believe that, that every hardship, every hardship begins to look like an opportunity, not because the hardship is itself an opportunity, but because in the hardship, there is a blessed opportunity. Then everything is an opportunity, and then you'll waste nothing, especially hardships. Now, let me just end with—I'm going to gross this up a bit, okay? Because that can all sound really nice to a certain extent. And you might be thinking, Nick, that, I'm, I actually believe that. I'm a Christian. I actually believe that. That is my conviction. But man— this, the whole thing is just a grinding ugliness. And my response to that is, yes, that's true. Absolutely, it's absolutely true. What you need—let me, me give you an example of something similar to this. A, a few—a couple months ago, um, I talked about my wife taking a trip to Florida, and while she was gone, I started a worm farm in my basement. And by about Tuesday of this week, I'll have about 3,500 worms in my basement. Um, because I know that sounds like a lot, but this— they're small, okay? And it's about what you need to compost the waste of a family of six. And one of the things that is the reality here is that all of our garbage goes into these bins, and these poor little creatures have to eat it up, and they're, they're, all their life is is turning garbage into one of the most valuable things on planet Earth. In fact, composting with worms is actually called vermiculture, built on the word for vermin, Right? And I don't know if you realize this, but all of the stuff we think of as vermin, they are, the, they are the critters on earth that make it green, that make it beautiful, that make it clean, that make it fertile. <coughs> These little creatures that get devoured so fast, they have to make 10 babies a week just to not go extinct. Because everything eats them. They are unappreciated by robins. Okay? <laughs> but everything has to pass through them. And in this metaphor, you are not the worm, you are the garbage. That is, all the, all the hardships in your life are, is this garbage, and it has to pass through this terrible, disgusting, digesting process so that it can become something that is not shiny, that is the most fertile thing on planet Earth that produces everything. That's what real life is like. It's not like a machine shop. That's what real life is like. What, what life is like is that you're all of your hardships, and you, as the person having to go through them, have to go through a disgusting, smelly, slimy, terrible process in which the result is unrecognizable from what went in, that is not shiny, that nobody pays attention to, the process is entirely unthankful, and in which you tend to be in the company of vermin. But the product is the most fertile, the most life-producing thing in the world. And God has left many metaphors for this in nature and in life. It is we who choose not to pay attention to them because we wish that reality would be otherwise. But all of that question comes back to two basic questions. Is or is not Jesus better than life? And two, is the good character of the God who has a secret will trustworthy? That's it. That's it. That's the question. And that's why Jesus and the character of God is displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why we're told about it in the scriptures. That's why there's a whole Old Testament that says any, everything about the acts of God. That's why God has displayed himself in the glory of creation and in the, and in the conscience, broken as, it, broken as it is in human beings. It's why God has spoken and shown himself in the re re revealed way that he has. He's done it so that we would know him enough that we would not trust his plan because we knew the plan, but we would trust the plan because we trusted the God. And that in trusting his plan and in responding to his revealed will and obedience, that our faith would allow us to waste nothing, especially hardships. 
And then as we walked through that every day, more than the day before, we would see every hardship as containing a blessed opportunity, and that we would be more convinced, more deeply, more completely, with more discipline, with deeper convictions, with stronger curiosity, that Jesus is better than life. And when that happens, we will progressively grow less full of fear, more full of faith, more easily filled with joy, more easily disciplined to control ourselves when we must, more full of patience when things don't go the way we want them to, less self-centered and narcissistic and therefore then more kind, cheerful, and loving towards other people, more full of manners that make other people feel at ease and hospitable towards those that need to be welcomed in, more sympathetic towards all the hardships of others, and more passionate and enjoying of the glory of God and everything Christ has done in the gospel. Waste nothing, especially your hardships. The God who has a secret will is trustworthy, and Jesus is better than life. Let's pray together. God, please help us to not dismiss the truth of your ways because of the felt sentimentalism that it, that this is somehow simplistic or sentimental or unrealistic or unfalsifiable. But I pray that you would help us to trust what you've shown us about yourself in faith and so be drawn to the basic truth of Christian faith that Jesus has to be greater than life. And I pray that there be people in this room right now who would be confessing to you in their hearts that they have, they have somehow believed in you in some way to save them, but they have not ever reckoned with your fundamental claim that you are better than life. That to be your follower means to take up the cross of our life and to follow you towards execution and to lay it down so that you can give back what you want and the way you want and the time you want and so that everything you give us back we would do for your glory because we are serving you not men, not even ourselves. I pray that you'd make us a people who in incredible joy waste nothing in our lives, especially our hardships. We pray in Jesus' name for his glory out of his worth and desire of his transformation. 